hardest questions to God. Um, we believe that part of being a Christian is asking our hardest questions of the Lord and not just sort of sitting around saying, hey, you know, just take everything on faith. But faith is a part of, every, part of what, who we are and what we do. But, but because our lives are full of questions and our, our, as, as a church here, our lives are centered on Jesus and on God the Father, we need to ask him our questions. And so that's what we're doing. And so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about our subject for this morning, and then we're going to have a time afterwards for Q&A. So you can ask your questions in one of two ways. One, you can grab a microphone, which we will have back here. Um, it'll be clear when we, when we start doing that, that section. Or you can text your questions in. Um, so over the last few weeks, we've been asking, we asked three questions so far. First, if God is supremely good and all-powerful, why is there such horrific suffering in the world? Second, what is God's purpose for my life? Third, why does God care so much about my sexuality? And today, the, the overarching question is, why can't all people go to heaven? And we received all sorts of questions that fall under this category. Here's a smattering of those. If God knows all from beginning to end, why would he create any person who is destined for hell? How can God grant free will and yet predestine some to be saved? How do I know if I will go to heaven when I die? When it comes to a non-believer who lives a good and generous life, do their actions not matter to you because they don't believe in you? That's just someone speaking to God. How do we know that which path or belief leads to God and which don't? Why doesn't God reveal Christ to everyone? Why is eternal torture fitting, fitting, a fitting punishment for those not believing? And why doesn't God want his creation with him in heaven to begin with? So we summarize those questions by asking this question, why can't all people go to heaven? And we're going to answer this question by asking three more. First, is there a heaven to gain and a hell to fear? And the answer to that is yes. Heaven and hell are not vestiges of a melodramatic Christian tale. Heaven and hell are very real and they await, one or the other awaits every person on the planet and every person who has ever lived and every person who will ever live. As always, I'm not going to ask you to take my word for it, but what we're going to do is we're going to look in the Bible and see what it has to say. Heaven is a way the Bible speaks of the place where Christians go when they die. Now, in Greek, the word heaven is just another way to say sky, so we don't really know where it is. But the important thing about heaven is not where it is, but who is there? Jesus. And here's what we know about heaven for those that die in Christ or as Christians. Immediately upon death, the Christian goes to be with Jesus right away. We find the consistent testimony of the Bible to be that Christians, when they leave this world, they go directly to Jesus. They're consciously with Jesus. An example of that is 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And Jesus said of the, to the, the thief hanging with him on the cross, he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Three common misconceptions about the afterlife, about eternal life. First, purgatory. 
Uh, the Bible nowhere describes a place called purgatory. That's a teaching from 2nd Maccabees and has been adopted by the Catholic Church. Third, second, soul sleep. This is the teaching that when you die, you're unaware and unconscious until the end. Again, this is something not taught in the Bible. We see people consciously with Jesus after they die and before the, the final resurrection. Third, heaven is not our final home. We will go there after we die, but when Jesus returns, he will judge all of mankind and recreate all of this earth and the whole universe and give new, what's called resurrection bodies, to any who have trusted in Jesus. So we will not live in a disembodied state. We will live in an embodied state for all mankind or for all eternity. What about those who don't believe in Jesus? Now, as clear as the Bible is about heaven, the Bible's clear on this as well. Those who do not accept Jesus go to immediate torment. Now, this place is called many things in the Bible. Hades, outer darkness, hell, Gehenna. And sometimes it's described on, by what goes on there, like weeping of gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal torment, eternal fire. And this torment, this punishment is forever. We see this in many places throughout the New Testament, but especially in Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation 14. John says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, don't get distracted by all those images. Those are just people who refuse to believe in Jesus. He also, those that don't believe in Jesus, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up. This is those that don't believe in Jesus forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Those are people who don't believe in Jesus. That's eternal torment. Jesus himself says the exact same thing as he describes the end in Matthew 25. And these, those who do not believe in Jesus, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The punishment is eternal. So is there a heaven to gain and a hell to fear? Yes. And maybe you're asking another question, a question that we put to headline all of what we're talking about today. Why can't all people go to heaven? Why can't this loving God, if he is so loving, just open his, wide, his arms wide to everyone? How is it fair that some go to heaven and some go to hell? Now, if you're honest, you're going to recognize that you don't really want everyone to go to heaven. There are people that you think should be left out. Murderers, child abusers, willfully neglectful parents, rapists, Hitler, and others. I mean, we don't want them in heaven. It would be unloving for God to overlook their grievous sins and allow them in. A loving God would not allow those things. So what do we believe? What's our standard? Because all of us have a standard. Essentially, what mankind believes is that our standard is that people like us should be allowed to get into heaven. People who don't do things that bad. People who aren't perfect, but those that are, hmm, you know, pretty much okay. A famous Christian thinker from the last century challenged our 
standards. His name was Francis Schaeffer. We all have internal standards, and he points it out in this way. He said, imagine all of us, each individually, carried around our neck an invisible tape recorder that clicked on every time you gave advice to people. And imagine that was the standard by which we were judged. Now imagine if I talk to someone and say, listen, you shouldn't be lazy. And my recorder clicks on. My recorder clicks on and hears things like, you should care more about other people who need help. You should have more integrity. You should be generous. You should be honest in every moment. You should work hard all the time. Don't lust after people who are not your spouse. You should be a more loving person. Now, if at the final judgment, the Lord took off that recorder that would be invisibly hanging around my neck and played it for me and said, I will judge you by these standards, I would still fall short. We all fall short, even by the standards we set for ourselves. By any and all standards, we fail, and even by our own standards, we fail. So, the Bible also tells us that anytime we sin, God is the most offended party. So when we sin against someone else, as grievous as that is, the one who is most offended and the most aggrieved is God. Now why? Because he created us, he gave us good gifts to use those gifts for his glory, yet we've turned away and used them for ourselves as rebels against him. All of mankind stands in one accord, guilty before God. Mankind was created to represent God as those made in the image and likeness of God on earth, and instead we've gone our own way and turned our backs against him and have tried to make God in our own image. And all of mankind is guilty. So how bad is it? There's a place in the Bible, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18, that tells us how bad it really is. Paul, summarizing verse chapters 1 and 2, explains that everyone is guilty by saying this. Verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That means guilty. Jews and Greeks is another way of saying all of mankind. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths, their mouths is full of cursing, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So in God's eyes, all of mankind is guilty. Why doesn't he send everyone to heaven? Because all of mankind is guilty and deserves eternal death. Now, you might say, well, how is this right? How is this fair? Well, we see in, Gen in, in Romans chapter 3 here that mankind chooses rebellion and hell instead of God and life. What about those that never received the chance? Remember, Romans chapter 3, verse 1 says that there is no one who seeks for God. No one who seeks for God. This means people naturally do not look for God. Not really. Those that look, God, God, God's, God find, they find. 
Think of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 or the many dreams that are reported amongst adherents to Islam. Now, what about eternal punishment? Is that too extreme? Now, it might be from our perspective, but we need to remind ourselves that there's another perspective to consider, and that's God's perspective. Mankind is guilty. Mankind is against God. Mankind is not looking for God. Mankind is all deserving of eternal death. God, though, is all-loving, generous, caring, protective, kind, gentle, and good. And he's also eternal. And when you oppose an eternal God, you pay with an eternal punishment. That's the principle in play. Is this unfair? Is this wrong? Is this unloving? I think what we need to remember is that, that it's in spots like this that we see how different God is from us. See, we're apt to think about what God should do based on our own sensibilities, and those are the only kind of sensibilities we have, human and created sensibilities. We're tempted to think what's right and wrong based on what seems right and wrong to us. But there's another that has perspectives and sensibilities that we need to think much more hardly, much more deeply about. Um, We can't just take our notions of fairness and apply them to God. We must attempt to understand at least that we can't see things from his perspective. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says this. Isaiah speaks, Isaiah writes this down. These are the very words of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how different are our thoughts from God? Well, as far removed as this spot to the outer reaches of the universe, far beyond what any telescope can see. How different is he than us? How much higher are his ways and his thoughts than our thoughts? Far beyond any measurement that we can even conceive of. That's how high and how different. His perspective is that different from ours. So it makes sense that our perspective is going to feel limited and limiting. Why? Because we are limited. And so when we think about heaven, eternal punishment or eternal life, We move to ask, well, first we recognize there is a heaven to gain and a hell to fear. And the reason that not everybody can go to heaven is because all mankind is guilty. And that leads us to our third and final question of the morning. How can anyone get to heaven? And there's only one way. Romans 1 Chapter 6, Romans 1, verse 16, says very succinctly, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That just means good news. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the power of God for salvation is not bound up in good works or obedience or tradition or religion, but in the good news of Jesus Christ. You and I and all of mankind does not come into contact with anything so powerful as the message of this gospel. This gospel is the only message that can save people from eternal death to eternal life. I want you to see that it says also that 
He is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is no exclusivity here. There are no exception clauses. We see God open and eager and ready to welcome any who believe in his good news. Now, what is that gospel? It is the news or the message about who Jesus is and what he did. God the Son came to earth as a baby, grew to manhood, and all the while never sinned. He was tempted in every way as we are, but never shirked a responsibility, never left a good word unsaid, never did anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. He always thought and did and said everything right, and yet he was killed. He was executed by Romans on a Roman cross, but that execution was more than just dying. It was a substitution. It is said in the New Testament that Jesus died for others. That means he died in the place of others. Not as an example, but a substitution. Verse 8, chapter 5, Romans says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in dying, he took punishment. And this is the thing that should make us shake our heads. Instead of being consigned to eternal punishment, eternal conscious ongoing punishment, the eternal son was punished for me. God does not and cannot leave sin unpunished because he's loving and good and kind. And yet, he sent in love his son to bear that punishment for those who believe in him. God the Son took this punishment. That is the good news. That is the message that we need to believe. Not just that he came, not just that he died, not just that he rose again, but that he came to save sinners like me. That you or me, being a sinner, going to, somebody has to pay for our sin. Somebody has to pay for that sin. And that person will either be me or Jesus. Now Jesus has already died and rose again. If I do not put my faith in him, I will experience eternal torment. You might feel the darkness of sin now. You might feel just the the weightiness of your flaws and of your failures. And you might look around for different ways that you might think you can be saved through religion or obedience. But there is only one way. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says himself in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the exclusive message of the gospel. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to experience eternal life than through the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Why can't all go to heaven? Because all are guilty. Why can some go? Because Jesus has died and rose again. So that any who believe that they're sinners, who believe that they've fallen short of the glory of God, 
who believe that they need a Savior can put their faith in Him and look back at the cross of Christ, His death, and know that this death is not just a death that was a tragedy, but see that His death was a death that was a substitution. I can see the cross and say, it's Him dying for my sins instead of me living in eternal death for my sins. That's the switch, and that's what we all need that's where we all, all of mankind, that is the only way one can be protected from eternal conscious torment. Now I hope, as we've talked about this, you don't, you feel like I'm not talking about hell or Hades or outer darkness as in a glib or flippant way. It's not, it's, it's, hell is a very real place and it's not something to joke about. Um, and I think that there are a lot of Christians or a lot of people actually who call themselves Christians who seem to communicate with glee about those that are going to hell, pointing a self-righteous, sanctimonious finger at other people's people and proclaiming they deserve hell. <laughs> I know I deserve hell. But I have Jesus. And I think there's a lot of damage done by people who speak about God, sending people to hell, with a smile on their face. This is no smiling matter. This is not funny. Many who gleefully say that people are going to hell will end up there themselves because that is not the attitude of a Christian who's aware of his or her sin and the death that Jesus died so that they might live. See, the reason that anybody can go to heaven is because Jesus has died bearing the wrath of God rose again, and so that anybody who believes in him can follow him to be with God. And it's not just that you get to live forever. People are going to live forever, both in heaven and in hell. One will be eternal torment. One will be eternal bliss. Heaven without Jesus, the, the reason that we're, we're going to want to be with heaven is because Jesus is there. Heaven without Jesus has a name, and it's called hell. The reason our salvation is so spectacular is because Jesus is there. And today, you can follow Jesus. You can put your faith and trust in Jesus. You can give yourself to him. You can put your hopes on him. You can give your fears to him and your doubts and your questions. Most importantly, you can give your sin to him. And he can give forgiveness to you. I can't all go to heaven because all are guilty. Why do some get to go now? Because Jesus has opened the way. And I hope everybody here and everybody watching joins him for all eternity in heaven. Then to see the new heavens and the new earth. So let's interact over this for a while, about 20 minutes or so. So if you have any questions, text them in, or if you want to do it, via the microphone you can do that as well um, and so do we have a microphone we have a question right here Mark do you want to just walk back there Mark has a question he's going to walk back there grab the microphone and ask it where is it oh it's right there nope that's not it um, do you have a, any that have been texted in one okay we will find the microphone and we will Okay, Mark, why don't you, why don't you just, just say it loud, and I'll repeat it for the purposes of the live stream.
Look at Steve. Steve's got it. Yeah. All right, start all over. It was really good and articulate. We'll do it again. Hello. Hey, there you go. Um, I became aware of a few years ago of a false teaching um, where there's some, uh, some pastors who talk about in the final judgment, God will just take the people that are not going to heaven and it'll just sort of like exterminate them or yeah. save them. Yeah, it's called and annihilationism. Yeah, it, it, so it, is that something new or has that been around for like centuries or where, where, did, that, where did that come from? And, and it, what was interesting is that it sounded in some ways appealing because he said, well, God is so merciful and kind that he wouldn't yeah. actually have people suffer for eternity. So he's just going to, you know. Just... Yeah, it's called annihilationism. And so it's, uh, it's been around a long time. And it's not new. I mean, I think it's born from a heart and a desire to, it's in a good place. But uh, I think it ignores parts of the Bible that are very clear that, you know, Jesus says there is eternal torment. And so um, it's... It's a philosophy in search of a text, essentially, um, instead of a text being, instead of illuminating something that's in the Bible. So, good question. I want to text in here. Um, is it arrogant to believe that only Christians will go to heaven? What about the over 1 billion Hindus or 2 billion Muslims? Isn't it only a matter of perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and so, yeah, there's, and even more than that, I mean, I think about all the people that lived on the continent that are neither Hindu nor Muslim. You have, you know, the giant Inca, Aztec, Mayan civilizations that were here before that and civilizations we've never heard of. And so um, I think it would be arrogant if I was the one who was saying this is the way, but I'm not. Um, I am saying it only because I see it in the Bible first. And so it's not... It, God is the one who created all things. God is the one who is the um, creator of all things and the one that, to whom we owe ultimate allegiance. And so because of that, he is the one who has um, determined what's right and what's wrong. And so I think uh, the difference, like in, and one of the differences between, I don't think it's arrogant because it's true, um, one of the differences between, say, Islam and Hinduism is that is in Christianity, the Savior, God, became man to make a way. And there is no equivalent in other, other religions. And so any who come to Jesus will be saved. Any one of them who comes, anybody who comes to Jesus, he says he will never send them away. And so I think it's possible to communicate this gospel in an arrogant way that is off-putting, but I don't think it's arrogant because it's true, and the reason we know it's true is because Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and so, I mean, if you want to follow up on that, that's fine, but that's, that's how I'd answer that. Why don't all people get a chance to accept Jesus, and then after that, there's a uh, open parentheses predestination? Okay. I knew we'd get there. Um, 
Why don't all people have a chance to accept Jesus? Well, one, one thing to recognize is all people don't want to. And so, like, if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 11, we see this phrase, well, 10b, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So that's, a, that's an indictment against all of humanity. So the person seeking God that does not, that genuinely seeks God, according to the Bible, not according to me, not according to my philosophies, but the one who genuinely seeks God and does not find him does not exist. What kind of people populate the world? The kind of people who do not seek after God. Those are the kind of people that populate the earth. And so when... The only reason, and we can get into this too, but the only reason that anybody has any kind of inclination toward God is because of the activity of the Spirit to convict them of sin, to help them recognize something's wrong. Um, And so, uh, now, stepping back philosophically, why doesn't everybody get a chance? That's not a question I can answer. I mean, that's, that's a philosophical debate and a question that people have put to God in all kinds of different ways. Um, But I can tell you this, that when we are there on the final judgment, nobody nobody is going to be able to say something that will will sort of cast shadow on him. I mean, he says that at his judgment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Um, Every mouth will be stopped. And we will all see what God does, and we will see it to be good. Now, the problem we have now is our perspective is skewed because we compare ourselves with ourselves. We don't compare ourselves with God. And when we compare ourselves with ourselves, we find, oh, okay, we're pretty good or we're pretty bad or why didn't they get the chance I got? Now, those questions we can't answer. But we can answer there is only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Election. I assume... We, we need, okay, why don't you just look real quick at Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll show you where the, this is, in fact, a, a biblical word. Now, here's the thing about election. Election, there's a lot of people who talk about election, and a lot of people who speak about election, and they're jerks about it. Um, I, I think that's a massive mistake, and if you've run into people like that, I, I'm, I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's not, how the way, that's not how we ought to hold these things. But we read that it's a biblical word. Verse, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here's what he says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so there's the concept right there of predestination. It's a biblical word. Some people would define that word as God looking through the corridors of time and seeing who would choose. Other people define the word as God choosing because no one would choose if he did not choose. Um, there are, th- this, is, this is a fraternal debate within Christianity that has been going on a long time. Um, and... Uh, I prefer the plain meaning of the text, which is this, that God elects some to salvation. Now, you might say, well, how does he choose? We're not told how how he chooses. Also, how do we know? We don't know. And so, we cannot know. 
Um, no one walks around with a big E on their head, um, and you say, okay, that person's elect. No, how do we know? We, we don't know, and so we must be the people who preach the gospel with the urgency that it demands. Romans chapter 10 says, how will they hear if, how will they believe if they have not heard? And so our job is to hear, or is to preach and, and pray that people hear. Now, I would say, as one who holds to election, I know by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, 4, 5, I know that some of the people who I preach to will respond because God's on my side with it. But I don't talk about election to people who aren't saved because it's not really the point. The point is, if you're a sinner and you feel your sin, you must repent. And Whoever believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. Whoever. Jesus sends no one away. No one. And that's one of the other reasons that the gospel is not narrow. People say it's so narrow. Is it, you know, how can you say that it's just one way? Well, it would be narrow if he says only you and you and you and you. Actually, what he says is whoever comes will be saved. Now we can say we know. Then biblically we can put it together and go, okay, I can see in eternity, once we'll understand, we'll see and go, okay, well, those that come were the ones that were elect, but we can't see that now. Right now, what we do is we preach the gospel in a blanket way to anybody who can hear, anybody who has the capacity to believe, and anybody who believes in Jesus will go to heaven and experience eternal life. So that's the short version. I got a couple here that seem like you've answered already, but just let's right. stand here and see if there's additional context you'd want to provide. Sure. Um, if someone has never heard the gospel, how is it fair for God to condemn them to hell? They had no opportunity to believe. And then the follow-up point was, if someone cannot believe the gospel unless God predestined them to believe, then how can God find fault with those who reject the gospel? Okay, so let's do the first one first. How, how is it fair if they don't have a chance to hear? Right. Right? Yep. That's the summary there. Um, well, that's where I, I think, this is where I have to recognize that God's thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are high above my ways. I don't understand that, and I don't understand how that works. Because if I were to say that it is, that I understand how this is all put together in the economy of God, it wouldn't be true. But I can say that what we see here very clearly is that every person born to woman, which is every person save Jesus, is a sinner in need of a Savior. I can say that exclusively. Now, why the gospel is in some places and in not in other places, I don't know. And I don't know that I can answer that question, and I don't know that the Bible communicates that. But I can say that as Christians today, we need to preach the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's not an excuse to say, well, you, you are hearing it, and so what we need to do is, is, is believe it. If you're not, today is the day of salvation. And so, that's true. And what, the second one, could you follow up, say it again? If, some, if someone cannot believe the gospel unless God predestined them to believe, then how can God find fault for those who reject the gospel? So, and that, that's, a, again, a really good question. And so, this is where... This is where God, so <laughs> this is where we have to recognize that in eternity, when God judges, no one is going to be able to stand there and say, I didn't choose you because you didn't choose me. I mean, even throughout Romans chapter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, 
which lays out the indictment against mankind. All of mankind is guilty, and it says nothing about um, election. And so God is, God is, how is it right? Um, I, God is God. He is creator. He is the one who can create all things. And so he is the one who has ultimate responsibility. I don't, that's a question that he will, he, that we will see and experience as Christians one day when we stand before him. We're going to look and see and go, okay, this is right. Now, we are not going to be able to answer that or understand that now. I can tell you that there will not be a person who says, listen, if I would have just heard this, I would have believed. Um, there won't be that person because those, because we're going to see that, um, that those who have not chosen him are going, I mean, they're going to have to be forced to have their knee bowed and, and their mouth stopped and they're going to, they're, they're not going to want to follow him. Um, so that's the short answer. I can't, ex- I can't, under- I can't understand or explain the why of it. I mean, and, and that's where it's, it's easy to get tripped up on that because philosophically we have to, I mean, it's good to ask these questions, but there are some questions we're just not going to be able to understand or explain because that's in the mind of God that he doesn't explain to us. There are revealed things that are ours and there are mysteries that are not, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. And so this is one of the mysteries that we have. And so on the one hand, I see in the scriptures two truths. One, that everybody on the planet is responsible for their own actions. Two, that God is utterly sovereign. Now those seem like a paradox or a contradiction, but I see them both in the Bible. And so I have to say they're both true, but I don't understand how they work together flat out, straight up. I don't understand. And I don't think anybody can. But what I can say is my God is big enough to where I can say, I know, I know that everybody has personal responsibility and I know he's utterly sovereign. I don't know how they fit together. He does. And so I can believe that both are true because we see them very clearly in the Bible. And I don't want to sort of explain one passage away or explain another passage away. And if you've been, a, been with us for a while, you know that there has never been one time I've ever said, listen, if you're elect, you can respond to the Lord. That's not the gospel. That's heresy. Um, no, it's everybody can respond. Everybody should respond, and today is the day of salvation. So that's another, some more on that. So do we have any more? Yeah, we got Six seven here uh, queued up. Um, this one's similar vein. If we are all guilty, but some are saved, why can't we all be chosen by God to be saved? And why can't God choose everyone to be a Christian? Why can't? Yeah, I again, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I mean, you can look back and say, why did God choose Israel to be His people in the Old Testament? I mean, He says, I didn't choose all kinds of other nations. I didn't choose you because you were strong. I didn't choose you because you were wise. I didn't choose you because you were, you were, um, you were strong or, or, or better than others or more beautiful than others. I chose you, and he says, because I chose you, because he loves them. And he has reasons that he doesn't explain. And so that's one of the things we find about the Bible is that there's a ton of stuff here in these 66 books from Genesis to Revelation that he does explain, but he doesn't explain some things. And the things that he doesn't explain, they bother us. And they're like, well, why, does, why is it not this and that? We don't know. We just know here's what we see in the Bible. We see 
in the Bible people who have responsibility and a God who is utterly sovereign. We see both truths and both are right. How does the devil blind people? <laughs> How does the devil... That's a great question. It's the first devil question we've had. Um, the devil blinds people in a few different ways. And if the devil is real, we haven't talked much about We don't often talk about the devil here. I grew up thinking the devil was everywhere, um, behind every bush and rock and everything. Um, but he is real. And the, one of the ways he blinds people is a few different ways. Through accusation is, the, is one way. So if you're a believer in Jesus, one of the ways you can be blinded is by thinking that your sin is so grievous that you can't be forgiven. Same thing if you're not a Christian. You can think that you are so defined and marked by that sin that there is no forgiveness, and that's absolutely not true. The devil does that. The devil also deceives. He deceives. So he'll make truth that he'll make teaching that is close to the truth sound like truth, um, and, it, and people can get carried away with, with those kinds of things. And the other thing the devil does is he confuses. So he, he'll confuse people um, with what, what's right, what's wrong. He'll get people to think what is wrong is right and vice versa. Um, I mean, that's how he, how he functions. Um, and... Uh, the other thing he can do is just make people be afraid. I mean, he'll do whatever he has to do. Um, he'll work through um, he'll work through witchcraft and necromancy, and he'll work through empty legalistic religious traditions. He'll work through anything to get people to have hard hearts, whether that's the mysterious and the magic, or whether that's whether that's a religious tradition. He'll do whatever he wants, whatever he can, and he's. He's sly, and he's dangerous, but also he doesn't hold a candle to the power that Jesus has. And so we resist the devil, and he will flee. And so we don't have to be afraid of him, but we do, know, we do need to know that he is our mortal enemy, and he will stop at nothing. Nothing. Because he knows his time is short. What happens to Old Testament saints? Ah, I love that question. What happens to Old Testament saints who died before Jesus came? I love that question because it, uh, and somebody asked, asked this last time. If you have a Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 11, um, verse 23. Essentially, what happens to the Old Testament saints is that they're saved just the same way we are by Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement alone. Um, we look back on the cross and resurrection. They looked forward. It's the same thing. Um, and we see this in verse 23. By faith, Moses, remember Moses, he's Old Testament. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He is the one that led the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt in, let's see, like 2,000 years before Jesus. Ah, just poke my eye. Um, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, catch this, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than wealth 
greater than wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ. So we, we see the writer to the Hebrews talking about Moses following Jesus. And that's the way it is for every Old Testament person. They looked ahead to Jesus and followed him just the same. Many Jews and many U.S. Christians hold that all Israel will be saved at the end. Is that true? Um, yeah, I think what you have to do is you have to look at the end of Romans, and I, there's a debate about whether or not that means the nation or whether that means the people. I believe and hold to the fact that there will be a, um, a number of Jewish people who will be brought to the Lord at the end. One of the great mysteries of... Um, Christendom, and you can see Paul wrestling with this in Romans chapter 9, is why more Jews didn't, uh, didn't believe in the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and he said it grieved him so much he would rather give away his, his salvation for them. And so uh, the, there's a big debate over that, um, but I would say based on what we see in, in Romans, that I would see that there will be a an in-gathering of, of the Jewish people, um, not necessarily the nation, but the Jewish people in the end. What is the teaching about purgatory in the Maccabees, and why don't we accept this as part of the Bible? Why don't we accept it as a part of the Bible? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the teaching of Maccabees is just, it teaches purgatory. Um, first of all, Maccabees is a book, it's a historical book, but it's not a book that was ever accepted in by anyone um, as part of the Old Testament, never. And so we don't accept it because nobody has accepted it um, until the Council of Trent did um, much, 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 much later after the closing of the Old Testament canon. And so um, the Apocrypha is what that's called. Those books are not part of the Bible. And so uh, any, any teaching in there that, like purgatory, is, is an example of, of uh, something that is not taught in the scriptures. The idea of purgatory is um, that you go to purgatory and work off your sins for one, two, three, four, five million years or so, um, and your friends and relatives can actually help you cut down your sentence in purgatory by offering indulgences, um, or taking pilgrimages, or venerating the saints, or relics. Um, and those things are things that are um, not found in the Bible and, and very dangerous. Um, and so the question of whether or not, um, why not Maccabees, uh, is a question that is related to how we got the canon. And just real briefly, historically, there's not one church father who reference Mac, either of the Maccabees as a, as a book to be included in Scripture. And there's not one person who ever quotes it as a book that, is, that quotes from it in the Bible or references it as Scripture anywhere in history until Trent. So that's the short answer there. I'm going to combine a couple of questions here. Okay, um, got about five minutes. Okay. What's the point of worshiping if God worshiping God if everyone is already predestined, and is there really free will? Okay, so free will and determinism are two different things, right? So it's one thing to say free will, I'll say it this way, there's free will and auto like 
I can believe that there is a, such a thing as free will, but I can also say that we're not autonomous, we're not robots. So um, if, if everything was determined in such a way that our choices didn't matter, there would be no reason for Paul to ask the people that he writes letters to to pray for him. Because he could say it's predestined, it doesn't matter, God's sovereign, he'll do what he's going to do, just go on with it. But he doesn't. And so what God does is when it comes to bringing about his will, he uses means. He does not just decree things and everybody like robots just sort of walk down a line and just do what he, do, what he wants done. What he does is he uses means to bring about his will and the means of prayer, the means of obedience, the means of people living and following Jesus Christ, those means he uses to bring about his will. So I believe there is free will, absolutely, because when I, when I sin or when I do something right, it's not as if somebody's twisting my arm and saying, you better be ungrateful for what I'm going to give you. Oh, no, 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 okay, okay. You know, no, I can do that very naturally, you know, and I can do it very naturally at times when I'm empowered by the Spirit to obey. I have the free will to do that. Nobody's forcing my hand. At the same time, I'm not autonomous as if I'm a created being that is unable to be influenced from outside sources, much less God. So that's how I'd answer, answer that. Got a, got a couple of questions here uh, related to the idea of losing your salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this one, uh, the question of the second part of it says, especially those who seemingly serve God and then walk away. Yeah, that's a great question. And so, so if someone is genuinely a Christian, um, Jesus says, all that you have given me I have not let any, or, or, I have. So, and we see other places where we see a genuine Christian will persevere to the end. The trouble is, not everybody who confesses Christ is a genuine Christian. And how do we know? We know by their fruit. And so we can look at some place like, um, for example, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. There are different kinds of soils where the seed are tossed about. You can look in Mark chapter 4, I believe it is. And so you have some soils where a, you know, a, a crop grows up and then it's burned off or thorns come in or it's on top of rocks and rocks burn it away or the sun comes down. Or, and there's only one kind of soil where we see fruit being fruit being. Um, harvested from it. And so uh, what I would say is that there are people who confess Christ that when the troubles and hardships of life press in, they walk away. And that shows that if they do not come back and follow him, that shows that they weren't Christians. Now we can see at the end of Matthew chapter 7, why don't we, sh I'll show you this, because this is one of the, one of the issues in Matthew chapter 7, where we have, we have this stirring phrase, we have this stirring scene that Jesus Jesus presents um, in verse 21 at the end um, not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now what's the idea here? Even people who did many mighty works 
who did amazing things may not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who does? Did you see? It's those that do the will of the Father who is in heaven, those that obey. So how can you tell who's genuinely saved? It's the testimony of their life. It's obedience, not that they can do miracles, not that they can cast out demons, not that they can prophesy in amazing, with amazing accuracy, but that they live a faithful life. So that's how you can tell both who is saved and who isn't on this, like in this plane. And that's one of the reasons we practice church discipline. If any person who confesses the name of Jesus is content to live in a way that is unfaithful to Jesus, we're not doing our job if we don't say, listen, you should have no confidence you're a Christian. Because that test, the testimony of your life does not match up. And I don't want people to get to this spot and say, wait a minute, I did all these things in the name of the Lord. I'm good. No. How do we know we're good? If we confess Jesus that we're sinners and we need a Savior and we live in obedience following him all the days of our life. Perfectly? No. Faithfully? Yes. Consistently and persevering to the end. Let's take, can you summarize a few into one or... Uh, no, we only got a couple left. Okay, let's do those. Just those two, okay. okay. Um, Luke ten twenty. how do I know that my name is written in the book of life? Okay. How do I know that my name is written in the book of life? You know if you believe, if you put your faith in Jesus, then it is. See, this is, again, one of those, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those things where Luke 10 is talking about things from his perspective. Now, think about this also. God stands outside of time, so everything that he's, Everything that we've done or will, will, he knows, partly because he's sovereign over all things, but he created time and space, and he stands outside of time. We do not. We are trapped in time and space. And so you know your name is in the book of life if you have put faith in Jesus and if you follow him and live a faithful life. That's how you know. The last one, are we called to judge other believers? If so, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that's the, the whole idea of judge not lest you be judged. Um, so on the one hand, yes, and on the other hand, no. We're not called to judge other people with, <laughs> in some ways, but we are in other ways. For example, in that chapter, judge not lest you be judged, the very next chapter he says, don't throw pearl, pearls before swine. Somebody has to judge who's the pigs and who's not. Um, so we have to have some level of discernment, but at the same time, what he's talking about there is not judging somebody harshly in a way that you would not want yourself to be judged. And so as Christians, what we're called to do is think the best, um, love, overlook, overlook faults, overlook flaws, overlook all kinds of sins. And then as we recognize that somebody is living in a way that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't come in saying, Thus saith the Lord, I judge you as unfaithful. We come in asking questions. We come in trying to help. We come in trying to win over. We come in trying to, to, to point them to Jesus. Um, now, it might seem, and, and that's, it's not judging them in a way that's unbiblical if we come in and say, listen, it's, it's wrong for you to live with your girlfriend. That's wrong. It's wrong for you to steal money. That's wrong. It's wrong for you to live a life dominated by greed. That's wrong. It's wrong for you to be dominated by bitterness. That's wrong. That's not judgmental. 
it's judgmental if someone comes in and says something like this. You should make financial choices like I do. You should live in the kind of neighborhood or think about how you spend your money like I do. You should take all of these secondary issues and, and live in such a way that I live. That's, that's the idea here. When something is right or wrong, as Christians, it's our job to point that out to other Christians. So, thank you so much for participating throughout this series. And if you have questions, um, uh, we... Um, and I know that there's a lot of different things that are, um, you know, if maybe you ask some of those questions, especially about election, and you want to talk more, I'm happy to do that. Uh, my wife and I are about to take off and go on an anniversary trip, so it'll have to be when I get back, but I'm, great, I'm very happy to do, do that and sit with you as long as you want, if that's something that you want to talk more about. And I can, we can talk through texts and talk through books of the Bible if you want and uh, process that together.